Hello captives and captive friends and welcome to the Global Captive Podcast supported by legacy specialist R&Q. So it is time for something a bit different as the world around us changes very quickly and we want to be adapting the podcast to stay relevant in these challenging times. As you may have heard me mention at the start of our latest GCP shorts on employee benefits released on Monday 23rd of March, I have been looking into how we can produce some relevant, timely and valuable content regarding the coronavirus and the implications for captives and captive owners and the captive market more generally. And as I started jotting down all the issues that are coming to the fore, it quickly became apparent that just waiting for our fortnightly episodes every two weeks and addressing it there would not be sufficient and the situation may be moving too quickly and the information we share may not be timely enough to be that helpful. So I've decided to begin releasing short COVID-19 relevant content as and when we can put it together and make sure it's of good quality, of course. And starting with this episode, addressing policy and coverage issues and potential claims activity and disputes that I will come to in a moment. We are really going to put themed episodes out there as, as quickly as possible. So to give you an idea of the instalments of this, what we're calling COVID-19 captive series that are likely to follow in the coming days and weeks. We will be addressing governance issues, particularly concerning conducting virtual board meetings, the impact on captive investment portfolios in a really volatile market, and of course, the exposure of captive employee benefits programs to coronavirus claims. Now, the best way to make sure you are receiving all of this new content as soon as it is available is to subscribe to the Global Captive podcast on your podcast app of choice if you haven't already. So that could be iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud or any other podcast app. Just search for us and hit subscribe or follow. So our regular 30 minute Global Captive podcast episodes and our GCP shorts on alternate weeks will continue as usual as I'm very conscious that we keep producing the regular content our listeners already value and enjoy. But this first in our COVID-19 captive series is really all about potential claims activity where we may come across coverage disputes in the coming months and the potential captive role in all of that. So joining me on this episode are Joe Holohan, an attorney at law firm Morris Manning and Martin in Washington, D.C., and Peter Halperin, partner at Passage in New York, representing commercial policyholders in complex insurance coverage matters. Joe is going to talk us through what kinds of policies we can expect to see coverage relating to coronavirus falling under, while Peter later on in the episode will address where some of the disputes may be arising in the future. But before we get into the main part of Joe's interview with me, I just wanted to start with this important point from him regarding the role of captives in this pandemic and, more importantly, what they can't be expected to do for the insured. One thing the captive owners I think should keep in mind is is when they're evaluating whether claims are payable under say a property policy that's been issued by the captive, it's important that that they, you know, they be reasonable in the way they handle claims and that they feel that they have a, a you know, a reasonably solid position if they want to pay out a claim say for business interruption that there's 
a reasonable basis for um, making that payment under the policy. You know, it's important to, to preserve the integrity of the program. You can't treat captive insurance coverage as if it's a loan that can be called at any time and pay out proceeds. You, know, you have to abide by the terms and conditions of the insurance coverage that the captive has written. Are you are you already seeing those those conversations take place uh, amongst amongst your clients that have captive policies that may or may not uh, speak to this type of event? I haven't, but um, I anticipate I will. Now that theme is one that Peter Halperin returns to at the very end of this episode as we get into the importance of proper claims handling when there are third-party reinsurers involved in the program, but I thought it gives us some good context to set up the rest of this discussion. I started by asking Joe Holohan on what type of policies his firm is beginning to receive questions from clients regarding coverage issues. The area where we're getting the most amount of questions concerns uh, business interruption coverage, which is, as you know, that's coverage where for lost income and other related expenses where the operations of the business are disrupted or interrupted, suspended by a covered cause of loss. You know, the issue there with COVID-19 is um, that generally uh, policies require that there be some direct physical loss or damage to insured property before this income uh, coverage is triggered. And the question is, does this type of a situation with the pandemic, does that rise to the level of direct physical loss or damage. That's not always clear. There have been some courts um, in the U.S. that with other types of uh, physical agents uh, like chemical contaminants, they've been willing to to hold that um, where a property was contaminated with, with an agent like that, that that was enough to constitute uh, physical damage to the property and, and uh, allow coverage. In this situation, then, if, if the courts were to follow hypothetically a similar path, would the insured need to be proving that their workplace or offices or factory or, or wherever was actually contaminated with COVID-19? That's right. That's probably what's, what would be required. So, for example, if you had an employee or a, cust- or, you know, a business invitee who was known to have, have acquired the infection, that might be enough. It, it's it's not entirely clear, uh, but yeah, you would you'd likely need to show that there was some you know actual presence of the coronavirus at the insured property before you could you could recover. So failing actual property damage, the presence of the virus might be enough. Um, of course, I presume as well, some people might be have had the foresight or be fortunate enough to have epidemic or pandemic clauses or yes. inclusions in their cover, whereas I presume some of it might be silent cover? Yes. Yeah. It's, so some policies do have um, coverage for for infectious disease or you know, pandemic. It really depends on, and especially that those, you'll find those kind of coverages, especially as you might imagine in the hospitality industries um, and the healthcare industry. Um, so some of those coverages uh, may be triggered, uh, but it's important to look at the, the scope of the cover and the exclusions, because even there, you know, what I've been finding is uh, some of those are, are designed more for um, instances where you have you have some sort of contamination by an infectious disease at the property, as opposed to a you know, society-wide pandemic. In fact, pandemic may be excluded, and uh, so you may have only have coverage just for con- contamination at the property. That's not always the case, but but some of those uh, those endorsements 
uh, are written that way. So it's it, you have to dig deeply into the scope of cover to really know what's covered and what's not under these circumstances. So Joe, the other thing that's the other element that really springs to mind, particularly with the US context is workers' compensation. Obviously, big US workers' compensation market. What are we what are we thinking in regards to those types of policies where might coronavirus be relevant? Yeah. So as you know, workers' compensation uh, provides pays for the cost of medical care and to a limited extent lost wages uh, of of employees who are harmed by occupational injuries or, or diseases, uh, and certainly, for, especially in you know sectors such as healthcare, um, the, you know there, there there are going to be there's going to be workers' compensation claims um, arising from the from the pandemic because the covered covered claims are limited to injuries that are that arise out of a work related activity. It's important for employers to keep very close records if there's any potential, you know, they, they're aware of any potential exposure of an employee to the coronavirus because that's, you know, where, when, and how the exposure occurred is going to be critical to determining whether or not workers' compensation responds to that type of loss. And I guess the other thing to note here, is, of course, is that workers' compensation is quite a common line written by captives. So we, we could be seeing higher exposure to captives in, in regarding coronavirus uh, to these types of claims. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, especially, you know, healthcare, I mean, retail industries maybe as well, you know, for, uh, so for in the U.S., although many states have, have issued uh, lockdown type orders that restrict the ability of businesses to, to open their doors, uh, you know, food, food, uh, groceries and other other businesses like that, pharmacies, those are all open they, because they need to be and, uh, and their employees could be exposed. What about broader liability coverages? Yeah, well, you know, so it's a little early. Um, it was not too early for businesses to think about their risk management and loss control, you know, because especially with business invitees, you know, and, and others who may be on premises, you know, every business has a, has a, a responsibility to provide reasonable protections to the extent that they can. But I do expect that, um, you know, as this as this develops, that there will be liability claims in this area um, that will fall within the general liability coverage parts uh, of their policies. And that's not only claims for failing to provide, you know, take adequate precautions against exposing third parties to, uh, to the risk. It could also fall into areas, for example, uh, invasion of privacy, if somebody is um, identified as you know, having been been exposed to the infection, you know, is is not not desirous of, of having their identity published. You know, we could have uh, we could have claims under the general liability under general liability uh, coverages for for that type of thing. Um, even even um, you know wrongful eviction or um, or false imprisonment. Um, the, those types of coverage coverages could come into play at some point about about quarantine or isolation measures that are mandated or, or encouraged. Just one last question, Joe, if, if I may. One of the top topics on this side in the UK has been about the role of government with regards to actually ordering businesses to close. So when it comes to things like business interruption covers or maybe loss of attraction or loss of access coverages that, that may be out there, 
there seems to be quite a lot of debate here as if those policies actually need, there actually needs to be a government order for businesses to close to actually activate those policies. Has that been a debate in the US? And can you shed any light on that if, if some policies yes. do have that stipulation? Yes. So, so this goes back to business interruption coverage. Um, many policies have a, a coverage extension for orders of a civil authority that um, restrict access to an insured premises. And as with other business interruption coverage, generally that require, does require some type of governmental order that restricts access to the premises, um, coupled with physical loss or damage to, to some property. Typically, these are written in a way so that the, the loss and the damage has to occur to property other than the insured property. So you get back into this question, you know, not, only, not only the issue of has there been a governmental um, order that restricted access, but also um, uh, has there been any physical loss or damage to property? So that was Joe Holohan there of Morris, Manning and Martin, and you can find his biography as well as Peter's in this episode description. Now we're going to hear from Peter Halperin, a partner at Passage LLP based in New York and an expert in complex insurance claims and disputes. He began by giving us a brief lowdown on the claims activity that is just getting started. The claims are just starting to come to market. I think generally a lot of companies are, are still trying to figure out what's happening. There's a lot of uncertainty. And I think with that uncertainty is trying to figure out what are our losses, where are our losses, and what can we do? I mean, I think insurance is part of their uh, recovery strategy, but it's just one piece. And so for our clients, it's come in, tell us what coverage we have, tell us what our options are, help us figure out internally where insurance fits into our recovery strategy. And uh, from there, you know, uh, let's, let's make a claim. And uh, we're starting to see Clients put in notices uh, from what I know so far. There haven't been uh, denials, but uh, there, there have been soft denials, and, and clients anticipate that uh, uh, they'll have challenges to, to receiving coverage. In terms of the types of claims, this is a situation that's <laughs> impacted the entire globe. I think no industry is immune. It's the scale of it, you know, for, for a business, let's say, with uh, at least in the US, with a nationwide presence. If you're dealing with a hurricane, right, those damages may be relatively localized. It may be in, in Florida or something like that. But to have a hurricane hit every single state in the union in every single location at the same time, it's it's really significant. So I, I think whatever uh, limits these companies have purchased, their their losses are going to be in excess of those limits. Um, it's just the, the the nature of the beast. There is a, um, a matter right now, uh, the first piece of litigation that I'm aware of, insurance coverage litigation. That was filed in New Orleans. There's a restaurant in the French Quarter in New Orleans that had to close due to an order of civil authority. Um, and they filed a lawsuit against Lloyds of London, uh, alleging that they uh, are uh, going to be denied with respect to their business interruption coverage and that they should be entitled to, to payment of, of that claim. Again, my understanding is that the claim had not yet even been submitted to Lloyds, but uh, the the lawsuit was predicated on the expectation of a denial. So we're already starting to see disputes. Uh, you know, the, the key issues really, I think, will relate to um, exclusions. And uh, I have to say, there are a, a wide, wide variety of exclusions. Uh, there are kind of standard isoform exclusions, including the virus exclusion. Um, but then there are exclusions that mention communicable diseases. There are um, pandemic exclusions. 
Um, there are so many different exclusions out there, and I think a lot of the disputes are really going to be in shaking out the, the differences between those exclusions and what is meant by the term virus as opposed to disease or as opposed to something else. So that'll be a part of it. Uh, there may be fights about sublimates, which could be related to those definitional issues. But I, I think a, a lot of it is really going to come down to you know, what, what, what was intended to be covered, what was intended to be excluded, and, and how clear were, were all of those things. Are there particular types of policies which you think are going to present the opportunity for more disputes in the, in the coming weeks and months? Yeah, and, and I, I think I, I was alluding to it, but I, I should have specifically said it. I mean, the, most of these will involve property insurance. Um, and business interruption coverages related to the property insurance. But there's a lot of other coverages that are out there. And so one of the things that we've been doing is telling our clients, you know, don't, don't, don't shy away from taking a look at these other coverages. So, you know, obviously, if you have lots of events and you have event cancellation coverage, um, that's certainly going to come into play here. But, you know, there's, there's so many other things, right? It could be a pollution policy. There may be um, coverage in connection with cleanups. Uh, relating to uh, coronavirus. Um, there may be coverages for um, liability or um, workers' compensation. There are probably going to be political risk coverages that come into play where you know the government uh, nationalizes or orders nationalization of something or expropriation of something, uh, and trade credit issues. I was uh, recently talking to a broker in that space who um, I talked to about kind of the, the claims environment, and he had indicated to me he thought this would be like 2008, but, but 10 times worse. And, and most of those policies don't, don't have uh, any kind of uh, exclusion that might, might be applicable here. So um, you, you've got all those out there, and there could be disputes under a lot of them. But I, I think primarily in the U.S. at least, the, the fight seems to, to be pointed squarely at uh, property insurance and particularly business interruption. Um, as a result of that, there's been a lot of governmental activity, legislative activity, uh, in different states uh, pertaining to uh, how business interruption claims should be handled. So to give you three examples, the first is legislative. So in New Jersey, the, um, the state had explored a bill that would require those who provide business interruption insurance to pay um, coronavirus claims. Uh, my understanding is that that bill has kind of died in committee as the uh, industry aggressively lobbied against it. But um, who knows? It, it could come back. Uh, here in New York, uh, the Department of Financial Services, who's the ultimate regulator of insurers here, required insurers to respond to a questionnaire and answer certain questions pertaining to the level of business interruption coverage that they will provide and to address that to their policyholders so that they'll have an idea of, of what it exactly will be covered. And lastly, there was a letter from a couple of members of Congress to a group of insurers essentially saying, you know, pay business interruption claims for coronavirus. It's critical. We need you to do so. And so, you know, there are other legislative things out there, but I think those are the three major ones going on right now. And I think it really highlights um, the extent to which this is viewed, not just as a business to business problem between a, a policyholder and insurer, but kind of a, a governmental or societal problem that may require uh, intervention by the government. Yeah, interesting. And uh, we've heard some similar talk here in the UK regarding the government saying, telling insurers to, to pay certain claims. But I think it's difficult territory to get into, isn't it? Because not every policy is the same. Obviously, there are you know, traditional wordings and uh, of some policies, but obviously when it comes to more complex insureds and large programs, they often are quite 
customizable, if that's a word that I can invent here on the podcast. And particularly if there's a captive involved, it might be even more complex than that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's one of the things we're seeing too, is that the, the larger the client, the more sophisticated the client, uh, the better able they were to manuscript their policies and to you know get themselves into a position where not only is the their coverage but it's it's affirmative and very clear and so you know there there are other issues but um, they avoid that fight of kind of at the outset is it covered or not which we're seeing on other policies which may be less clear and i think in the captive realm you know it's this is a really interesting time and really interesting opportunity for captives and a real opportunity for them to demonstrate their value and how you know for a business that's concerned about risks that may not happen so often, like weather-related events, something more akin to what's happening now, uh, they can get the protection that they need regardless of how the market will respond. And given that the market is probably only going to become more challenging following this event, it will only further increase the import of, of captives as part of uh, corporate risk management strategy. Yeah, absolutely. You, you touched there on kind of a challenging market. And obviously, we were, we were deep into a hardening market already in 2019, Pete. And this kind of claims activity is not going to help. So, do you expect uh, this hardening market to have an impact on how aggressive insurers and reinsurers are going to be in, in challenging these claims as they do start to come forward? Well, I, I think their level of aggression <laughs> is unrelated to the hardening market. I think yeah, that there's yeah. a level of aggression here just because of the uh, scope and scale of the uh, economic liability they, they can be exposed to. So I, I think that's that, that's separate and apart from the hardening market. But I, I do think that the hardening market will only further harden as a result of this. And you know, when, when coronavirus first hit the US, uh, the, the insurance media, the insurance trade publications were all about how insurers were more concerned about their uh, losses in the in the market and their investment losses than they were about paying claims. Um, I don't know if the the thinking has shifted, but it, it certainly seems like the insurers intend to um, to fight these claims pretty aggressively. Yeah, and I think that that point about the the markets and investment portfolios is is apt, and we're going to have a slight window into that in a, in an upcoming COVID nineteen special, the Global Captive Podcast, when we hear about how it's actually impacting captive investment portfolios, because of course captive as in, uh, captives as insurers have their own investment portfolios, which are obviously going to be highly exposed uh, to the markets and, and currency fluctuations. Just just lastly, Pete. Um, if a captive has, and we touched upon this actually when, when we spoke uh, last year before Christmas, if a captive has issued a policy to a parent, and we know that captives can, can sometimes want to be a bit more flexible with, with, with their policies, and it wants to pay the claim relating to coronavirus, what considerations must be made regarding any reinsurers involved in the program, considering they're not going to want to to step forward if there is any kind of doubt over whether that claim is valid or not? So typically in a reinsurance arrangement, the um, captive or the sedent is entitled to payment and the reinsurer has to follow the fortunes or follow the settlements. Uh, and that's a highly deferential standard. There are very few ways for a reinsurer to escape payment um, under those terms. The exceptions to that are where the sedent or the captive acts in bad faith. Um, and the case law in the U.S. Is, is limited. There are very uh, limited circumstances where a captive or a sedent generally has been found to have acted in bad faith. But typically, um, that will arise where 
the sedent acts in a manner that is contrary or inconsistent with the way that they typically handle or manage claims. So there was there's one case which escapes me now where uh, involved allocation and deductibles and limits. And instead of using an environmental expert that the company typically used in determining how much it was owed under with respect to certain claims, uh, they didn't do so. And they just kind of came up with the allocation, right? And the insurer was able to, the reinsurer was able to escape payment on the grounds that this was a significant departure from the past and uh, potentially rose the level of bad faith. So the idea being as long as captives are consistent and they go through whatever process they've gone through before. And by the way, the insurer, the reinsurer who signed off on the reinsurance arrangement um, should be aware of these procedures, right? Because if they've signed off on these procedures, it wouldn't make sense for them to challenge them later on the basis that the captive is is a captive, right? So most important thing, be consistent, be open, and, and go through the proper process. And, you know, it may cost a little bit of money if, if it comes to that for the captive to uh, bring in a coverage counsel to write a coverage opinion, especially if that's what they normally do. But um, you know, in the end, it's it's worth it because belt and suspenders. You want to give the reinsurer absolutely no quarter, no space, and no ground to say that there was some inconsistency or irregularity rising to the level of bad faith that would give them a, a means not to pay the claim. Well, that is pretty much it for our first COVID nineteen captive special. By beginning this mini-series with a look at current and expected coverage questions and claims activity, it should set us up nicely for what is to come later on. I am not entirely sure of the order yet. It's all a bit up in the air as we are recording fresh content every day at the moment, but I am expecting the next two installments in this series to be on the impact from the pandemic on governance and board meetings and the crucial questions concerning captive investment portfolios. We should be releasing at least one of those before the end of this week. So that's the week commencing the 23rd of March. But hopefully we'll get both of them out for you before the weekend. The regular fortnightly episode of the Global Captive Podcast will return on Sunday the 29th of March with a great new guest co-host as well as a captive owner interview with Shruti Vias of SES Satellites in Luxembourg. See you next time, captives. (laughs) 